From his first job flipping burgers at McDonald's and delivering the Washington Post, Craig Willett counts only one and a half years of his adult life working for someone else. Welcome to the Biz Sherpa Podcast with your host, Craig Willett, founder of several multi-million dollar businesses and trusted advisor to other business owners. He's giving back to help business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs achieve fulfillment, enhance their lives, and create enduring wealth. The Biz Sherpa. This is Craig Willett, The Biz Sherpa. Thanks for joining us today. James Stevenson is our guest today. He's an entrepreneur who started a business in the United States. He hails from Southern England. The business he started was Cooper's LHC, a property management company that specializes in second residences and vacation homes in Park City, Utah. It's great to have him here. He, he brings a wealth of experience, and I think you'll enjoy his perspective. I'm grateful that you join us today for our podcast. We have a special guest. And before I introduce him, I just want to thank you for your continued viewing and listening. I hope that our episodes are very helpful. I think our guest today, James Stevenson, will be a great example for us to learn from on the principles that we try to teach here at the Biz Sherpa podcast. What I like about James is he'll have a story of leaving corporate America to start his own business, which I think is the American dream. And I think all of us can benefit from his experiences. The other thing that I like about James is that he's honest. He'll speak from his heart. He'll tell you exactly how he feels. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the Biz Sherpa podcast, James Stevenson. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. Appreciate great, it. Great to have you here today. Now, I forgot to mention, James is from England, so I don't want you to misunderstand <laughs> that he might have an Australian accent, but he's really from England. That's tell, right. us, tell us a little bit about your upbringing in England, what you did, what part of England you're from. Yeah, so I uh, grew up on the south coast of England, um, Brighton, just a little town outside of Brighton. Uh, went to school in, you know, just outside of Brighton, uh, did what we call a sixth form, and then decided whether or not I was trying to chase that dream of being an English soccer professional or football player, as we would call it. Uh, realized that I wasn't that good uh, and just had to accept that I probably was smarter than I was, you know, good at football. So I, uh, my dad and my mom <laughs> kind of coached me through that, if you like. And uh, I went on and instead of going to university in the UK, uh, I went to university in Long Island. And that was kind of my first thing. I had a soccer scholarship out there, uh, which was a really fun thing to balance was, you know, you always have that athletic drive, but then you managed to sneak in some schooling at the same time. So it was kind of the perfect balance for me leaving what I thought was going to be a career in soccer to then actually focus on some academics as well. And so I uh, went to school in Long Island, Long Island University, um, had a soccer scholarship and then graduated from there. Um, I got my MBA there as well. And then uh, started working in finance in New York. And um, that was the, the start of this uh, kind of long journey, if you like. Great. So how, what was it like to give up the dream of a football career or in, our, in the United States, what we'd say a soccer career? How did you make that connection and decide that you had to rely on your education? It's, it's really difficult. And I think a lot of players struggle with it, uh, especially when they don't have anything else to fall back on. You know, I think professional athletes, you have to admire their drive, uh, their passion for it. Um, and as soon as that drops off, you know, we, we go back and we look at some of the players that we played with that made it to the professional leagues. And the differentiating factor wasn't necessarily skill, it was their drive and passion. And as soon as you dilute that with something, you know, for myself was, you know, I do want to go to university. I had other dreams. I had other, you know, travel dreams, et cetera. As soon as I diluted that dream of being a soccer professional, it was pretty much over. You know, I realized that I didn't have that same drive as everybody else did. And you have to respect the, the commitment that those athletes have to, you know, to that next level of, you know, professional sports. You know, one thing I like about your background, I always have thought that owning a business is like being a professional athlete, except instead of playing at your peak for seven or for 70 minutes, you're playing at your peak for seven to 10 hours a day. You never know when what's going to happen when that phone rings. You always have to be performing at your top level. Whereas an athlete, they practice, they get some time off, they get time to mentally prepare, but then they give physically for an hour, hour and a half. And that's kind of, field. that's easier sometimes, isn't it? You know, you'd love to, you'd love to just focus for two hours and know that that was your workout or that was your thing. And you, you know, unfortunately seven to 10 hours can become 
18, 20, if you don't know how to switch off. And so, you know, you relate it to the, to the sports so well. And, you know, we've talked about the scorecard. It's hugely important for someone that was in sports to realize you're still competing. You know, you're still competing, whether it's nine to five or whatever, but you have to be able to switch off because their game ends at that final whistle. We don't have a final whistle. So you have to score yourself on your years of, you know, growth and, and realize you're winning, you know, or, or you're losing and, and right. And make the adjustments, right. Yeah. Make the adjustments, get the healing yeah, done, right. Absolutely. Get injured. Right. <laughs> and, and realize that you were injured because of a weak ankle or you're injured because of a weak employee and you have to go back and you have to rehab and do physio and you have to do training with the employee, whatever it is, it's, it's tough, but yeah, there's a lot of um, comparisons you can draw yeah, between that. I, I love the analogies in there. And I think it's something that we all have to consider as business owners that are we in top condition mentally emotionally and physically to for the rigors of business ownership, not to discourage anyone. But I think that's why some of your background makes you a good business owner. So you graduated with an MBA and an emphasis in finance, and you went to work in finance in New York? Yeah. And so I was working for MassMutual, a big insurance company. Um, and I did believe in the product, uh, but I wasn't immersed in it. I wasn't truly passionate about it. Uh, my network of you know, my clients and, um, you know, kind of the, the products, the, the trust and the state stuff we were doing, it wasn't relevant for the, the network that I had at that time. So, you know, I was pushing products and trying to sell to people that were 30 years my senior. And I just realized after a while, I was like, I'm not passionate about this. You know, I'm not passionate about, you know, whether it was wills or you know it just wasn't relevant to me the pain wasn't close enough for me so but, but that's a big step to go from new york city england yeah. to new york city yeah. to park city utah yeah how did you make the jump well i made a sneaky jump in between uh we i'd done a ski season when i was 18 right before i came out to uh new york to go to school and a ski season for most people as much as they want to pretend it uh, it's kind of educational and it's professional development and stuff like that. It's really just a gap year to go and have some fun. Um, so I'd, I'd done one in Les Deux Alpes, uh, in the French Alps, and then I couldn't stop talking to my wife now about how fun it was. And so we went back and we actually ran a, it was an eight bedroom ski chalet. Uh, and it was eye opening for her. It was eye opening again for me to realize kind of the way that the service industry is treated. You know, we look at the service industry and, and sometimes we think of them as the help. And now, you know, we'll talk about my business in a little bit. We're the help, right? And there's a way that the help is treated. And sometimes it's, it's pretty demoralizing. And, and so one of the things that differentiated us and one of the ways we were able to cope with it was we, we explained that that was a choice for us. We explained that when we moved out to France, we didn't have to. We were making good money. We were, you know, we were educated. We could do whatever we wanted. We made that choice. So when travelers came out and, or, you know, people came out on their vacation, we were able to, by the start, when they thought of us as the help, to the end of it, where they realized that we were choosing that lifestyle, to watch their behavior patterns shift, they were in the kitchen helping us cut carrots. So you became their friends. Exactly right. So they, you know, they were, they wanted to know where we were skiing. They wanted to experience what we were experiencing because we'd made that choice. It wasn't that we had to sit in that kitchen and bake a cake for tea time or whatever it was. We chose to do that so that we could ski right. 120 So you no days. longer were the hired help. You yeah. became, hey, we can help you understand what's absolutely. the best thing to do here. And yep. and we have aspirations similar to yours. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was a lot of fun to see that transition. I think that's a great principle in, in business is to be able to become friends with your customers and to be able to relate to them. And I think that really has been a key common characteristic that I've seen in a lot of people that I've interviewed. So you went over to France. When was was this? This was eight, nine years ago. Okay. Yeah. All right, but you were still working with Mass Mutual? No, I'd, I'd quit. We, Lindsay was a teacher on Long Island. I was uh, working um, for a group on Long Island and we just, upped and kind of went for it and everyone thought we were crazy absolutely crazy well, how do you go from the french alps then to the to the ski resort of parks yeah um well something that's interesting about the english tourism kind of industry was you know we're kind of set in our ways and you know what we realized was if we tried to take the english or european model uh that traveled in france and tried to relate that to park city we thought this is going to be great you know we're going to have english travelers come out to america we're going to have the U.S. travelers kind of embraced the European style experience. And then we got here and 
we realized, you know, we, we wrote a whole business plan. The entire time we were there, we were planning on Utah. Um, and I have a, As a bed and breakfast type? Yeah, we were thinking we were going to run one chalet. Okay. Um, and we'd had a couple of cool interactions with local people. Um, Dana Williams was the mayor. I met him in a coffee shop once when we came out here. And, you know, just that kind of local Park City feeling was really, really infectious. So we said, all right, we've decided on Park City. We kind of did our due diligence in Colorado. And we said, with the airport where it was and stuff like that, we said, Park City is the place to be. So we think that this bed and breakfast idea is going to work. And then, you know, we've even talked about this. If I told you to come down and have breakfast with everybody else on a big common dining table, thank God we didn't do it during COVID times, right? <laughs> right. Um, everyone was like, oh, well, you know, I don't really want to sit with those guys or whatever it was. So we realized that that wasn't the right business The European plan. model doesn't It didn't necessarily, necessarily translate. Um, and so what else was happening was VRBO and Airbnb was kind of changing the game. It was changing how people would travel. And so people were happy to take someone else's house. They didn't want to share it with others but they were happy to come and rent a home and, you know, have the experience like that. So, you know, we, we kind of pivoted there and realized that, you know, that was the demand. And, you know, we, we've got these huge marketing powerhouses just coming off the ground and they were so beneficial for us. I, I love the thought that you had a business plan. And then when you got here, after doing all your research, yep. even then you found out your business plan went worse. So you threw it out the window, but yep. what did you do? How did you get into the property management business? So we got in because we thought we were going to do this kind of concierge, you know, kind of the services that we thought we were going to offer to the one house. We said, let's try and offer it to a lot of houses. And we we weren't making money. You know, I was coaching soccer. Lindsay was coaching soccer. She took a teaching job. We were, you know, we were just scraping by. And I don't know why, but a couple of our clients that are still clients with us today, which is, you know, a great success story, just said, you know, we'll take a flyer on you. You know, we, we like your passion. We like, you know, the fact you're going to answer the phone. You know, I think one really cool story is that, you know, in New York, when I was trying to sell, no one would ever answer my phone call, right? And so then... If somebody ever called me, I was like, wait, there's a client calling me for business? I was like, this is brilliant. You know, like, right. so of course I'm going to answer. And they were like, you know, we hired you because you answered the phone. I was like, wow, well, this is, this is great. This is easy, right? And so after a while, we just sort of pivoted and we realized, you know, with offering some of these concierge services and because we picked up the phone, we were doing everything. And then we realized, hang on, we're managing properties. And that's where Lindsay decided, you know, she went in, got a real estate license. We added a few homes that first year. I think we had six. I was driving a suburban up and down from the airport, you know, trying to make a, you know, that was before Uber, luckily, but I was making, um, you know, a hundred bucks running people up and down from the airport, but we were doing whatever we could. Um, and then, you know, one year goes by, second year goes by, people, you know, realize that we're present, realize that it's, you know, truly owner run. Um, You're and committed. We you gave committed. it a personal touch. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, we kind of fast forward to where we are now. We manage, you know, 100 plus homes and 20 HOAs, and it's uh, it's been a been a serious journey. So, but it's been fun. Now, did you start from scratch, or did you buy an existing business? So we started from scratch on the the property management side, uh, and then about five years in, we had an opportunity. It was very random from a proximity standpoint. There was an HOA company um, where the owner was looking to retire. She was right across the road. Uh, she was looking to um, kind of, you know, retire. Um, and so we did acquire a HOA business and that was really, really interesting. The whole, you know, transaction was just interesting. And so that's kind of boosted our growth. We uh, we realized there was a lot of synergies between the two businesses and um, that was something that- So that was a way to augment yeah. to the next level. Um, what What motivates you? As you grow your business, I mean, you had an opportunity and you looked to buy, but what was your motivation in that? Yeah, I think the competitive nature, you just can't suppress it sometimes. And, you know, as much as I, I'm not passionate about property management, you know, I don't think that's going to come to a shock to any, <laughs> come as a shock to any <laughs> of my clients. I'm not passionate about property management. I'm passionate about solving problems, um, you know, seeing growth and then finding efficiencies. And, you know, I think, um, I, I love relating it back to when you get that Ikea booklet of trying to build some, you know, furniture, you start going and then by the end of it, if you've got that kind of drive, you're trying to work out how quickly you can screw something in or, you know, how quickly you can put together the next, you know, whatever it is. And that's kind of the same way I feel about the business. I'm not passionate about, you know, property management, but I'm passionate about improving the process. And that that's something that for me motivated me a lot the whole way through this. So given that, what are some of the key management principles you like to apply in business? 
Yeah, so um, communication. Uh, I really, I'm a big believer and it's come back and, you know, bitten me in the butt a few times, uh, both employee side as well as with client side. There's the old cliche of the door's always open to the manager's office. There's something to be said about that. That wasn't, you know, that was a good idea, right? But then you start hearing some baggage and then you start hearing about, you know, what they need and stuff like that. But if you don't know that, you don't know why your employee's not performing. Um, and you don't know why they're kind of off this week. And yeah, if you know that their grandmother's died or they're having a tough time with a kid or something like that, that communication can really keep a, pul a true pulse on the business. Um, and then I would probably add honesty uh, and transparency. And, you know, you touched on it. If, if we're not the right fit, we're, we're going to find that out eventually. So, you know, you go back to that growth and efficiency phase. If you, you know, extrapolate it out and you know it's not going to work in a couple of years, let's just cut the cord you're, here. Right. You're, very, you're very practical. You yeah. want to say, look, hey, this isn't a good relationship. Yeah. Let's just figure this out today rather than two years yeah. from now through a lot of pain. And that's, that's something that I think has kind of helped me become a sort of a trusted advisor for a lot of our clients because I'll tell them, you know, they're going to say, hey, we want to put these crazy bunk beds in this room. I'm going to say, it's not going to work. That's a terrible idea. And now that that, uh, if you empower the employees to feel the same, you know, kind of, I can communicate, I can, I can tell people this. Um, that's something for me that's, you know, hugely valuable because people want that honest feedback. They don't want to just be appeased and going back to the ski chalet, they don't want to just be the help, right? They're paying you for a service. Yes, sometimes we're just going to be the help, but if you can add to that level of service, that's, that's kind of really where you have clients for life and that referral network and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I like that. I, I tend to call that exceeding their expectations. Yep. And so if you are empowered as an employee or as a business yep. owner to go above and beyond what they're normally expecting, yep. then they're going to come back. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Now, recently you experienced some difficulties, well, uncertainties, I should say, yep. really not difficulties, but with the pandemic, the ski resort in Park City, I remember hearing, if you don't live here, go home, and they shut down the slopes and they shut down the resorts. How did you respond to that? Because I'm sure that impacted the people who were renting homes that you it, managed. It was really difficult. It was an emotional roller coaster. Uh, we had owners that have true investment properties and they're worried about their investment. You have travelers that have spent all this money on a trip and they need that money back. And now everything's, you know, we're all hearing batten down the hatches, you know, hang on to everything that you've got. And so you're in this really difficult kind of emotional conundrum or business conundrum to navigate. And, and really, as much as I, in hindsight, maybe I wish I'd said, this is the protocol. We're just saying this is the answer. Um, but we had a list of 96 problem uh, clients. Wow. And they were all 96 different traveler groups that wanted something or they had a story or they really wanted to sell me on something as to why they couldn't come and why they needed a full refund. And, and then we had the flip side of that where we have 96 owners or so that- Saying, hey, I have to pay my property taxes. Go, it's not my fault yeah. that they closed the ski resort. And I think, you know, going back to some of the stuff you've spoken about before, talk about client loyalty. You know, we were just honest with them. We said, guys, this sucks, right? This is horrible right now. How do we navigate this? And we reached out to, you know, a lot of our clients are smarter than I am. And I said, what do we do? You know, and Craig, thank you. Uh, you were one of them. Um, but a lot of people turned around and we saw some amazing, amazing people show their real true colors during that time. You know, clients gave money, clients said refund, clients said, you know, you keep your piece, you, you know, give them theirs. It was really, really difficult, but I would say just being honest and saying, guys, this this is not, you know, this is unprecedented times. We all knew that. And so how do we deal with it? We didn't learn that in an MBA book, right? There was no book, textbook right, to tell me right. how to navigate that one at all. Well, it was um, certainly dark clouds. It was totally unprecedented to say the least to have ski resorts shut uh -huh. down totally. I can't think of yep. any time in history where that's happened. And then people ordered to leave town because yep. they didn't want the pandemic spreading. It, it was so crazy. that was pretty dramatic in and of itself. And so there was this dark cloud, but how did you find your way out? Because I think some patterns and behaviors changed a few months later. They did. And I think we were fortunate that we diversified when we did and we bought the HOA business because the HOA, you know, the community management side of things was the steady paycheck. And we were very fortunate that we'd, we'd done that. Um, and it wasn't, it was intentional, but I didn't think of it. It wasn't intentional to prevent against the COVID pandemic. Right. right? You never thought the other side of the business would totally collapse. Yeah. And so, you know, when that literally shut down in the middle of March, 
we were so fortunate to be able to keep, you know, keep employees on, you know, cover our core, you know, contractual obligations. And then again, reached out to people and said, hey, what do we do? And the best reaction was, you know, as soon as you're allowed to, we need to paint our house. Can you guys do it for us? You know, we need to, you know, redo our deck. Can you guys do it for us? And so people were almost paying it forward in that dark cloud moment. And that kind of gave me the, you know, I went to a skeleton crew in the office and I went to some of my core guys and I said, you got to keep the lights on here. You got to go for it. And they worked their butts off. They got through it. And then, you know, kind of be careful what you wish for. We had the busiest summer we've ever had, right? Because everyone had these projects <laughs> lined up for us. And then, you know, what the pattern shift here in Park City was people came out for a really long time. And so, you know, you had owners coming out for a prolonged period. You had travelers staying for extended stays. And so we were just slammed. And the guys that worked their butts off during the spring weirdness, then had to keep working their keep butts off. Really uh, busy still. Really busy. So it was, it was dark for a bit there. And, you know, again, being honest with your employees and saying, guys, this sucks. You know, we heard about other companies. They worked on the grapevine, was selling people who just fired everybody and just shut up shop. And so I think the employees recognized that. And instead of just kind of, you know, sending an email or whatever, it was like, nope, I'm going to call every single one of them and explain what's going on. And those were some awkward phone calls. Um, I'm sure they were, way. but you also had the philosophy, I think, as you explained to me, that you don't want to just let people go. It takes a lot to train them. Yeah. And so you kind of worked with them to try to meet their needs yep. during the interim, but bring them back when you really could use them. And that, that was, you know, again, being so close to your employees is a, is a good, good and a bad thing. You know, I knew that certain employees had kids that didn't have childcare. I knew that certain employees needed the paycheck because they weren't going to make rent. I knew that certain employees had, you know, different situations. So, you know, I called them up and, and the, the cool thing about it being a small business, you know, we've got 30 employees, everybody knows each other. And so if I say to them, Hey, you know, so-and-so has got this situation where, you know, he can't work or she can't work. Are you happy to work? And, you know, it was kind of that, I felt like, you know, going back to your reset button, everybody clicked it. They had to, you know? And so luckily employees did as well. And they were like, yep, you know what? I'll take one for the team here. Or, you know what? Someone else can have that shift because I don't need it and stuff like that. Wow, that was awesome. it was It was powerful, to be honest with you, to see that. And now our core group coming back, talking about it, we'll joke about it and they're stronger for it. You know, you go through some of those things and you're definitely stronger for it. And, you know, with the pattern change, we all of a sudden became... Uh, a country where we didn't, we realized we didn't have to live in a certain city to be able to work in that city. We've seen it. We've seen it here, especially in Park City, where people from New York and Florida realize that, hey, they can still run their high-powered yeah. office from wherever they are because everything became remote. Yeah. And and so did school and everything else. So patterns of stay change. How, how have you capitalized on that and how has that impacted your business? And that's been really difficult because you know, the patterns of stay changed and we have, you know, we have software that's designed around uh, vacation rentals, you know, four nights to sort of 12 nights would be kind of your typical vacation rental. And then all of a sudden people say, I want to stay for three months. Well, your pricing algorithms go out the window, you know, you have to communicate with the owner. So you've got all these extra touches. So there was nothing efficient about it, but we were clambering to grab anything we could. And so, you know, we just, again, I, I would say we pivoted, but we didn't pivot well. We pivoted how we had to. And it's not, even to today, it's not an efficient system that we have yet. And we we wonder whether or not it's just going to be short-lived and we'll revert back to our regular one this winter. But we're already seeing these longer-term stays. And so, you know... Yeah, it's it, hard to know whether we're on the precipice of a real change in yeah. total lifestyle and total yep. travel pattern change yep. or whether it's temporary. And I, and I think we talked about a consumer behavior a little bit and before this, because, you know, we hit the reset button, but we don't think they're going to necessarily, we're not going to have a click of that button in the same way to revert back. So right. that consumer behavior is going to take a while to either transition back or, you know, or solidify, or solidify where they are. So, you know, we're just kind of uh, hanging on to the, you know, to those and just adapting to those changes as they come up. You know, one thing that impresses me as as I listen to your stories that you share with us today, you don't mind being in touch and communicating with your with your clients and your customers. So you have both. You have the, the property owners and you have the guests that come on a temporary basis. So, you know, how do you share us some tips on what you use to close deals? Yeah, it goes back to that communication and honesty piece. And I, I think, you know, 
we can joke about the fact it's because I've got a, a good English accent. So people think I'm more educated. Um, but I, you know, for that's me- That's a good advantage. Yeah, that was, that's definitely <laughs> an advantage. But that was one of the reasons I left New York was because it was quite scripted. And, you know, I think that whenever we look at, uh, you know, kind of sales manuals and how to sell and, you know, there's some great principles to pick up on, but it's got to be in your own voice. And I think that's hugely valuable. And, and when it's your own product as a business owner, of course it's your voice, you know? So it's, you know, I don't have to pretend that I'm selling a product for Craig, I'm selling my own product. So that's the most authentic voice there is. And so educate yourself on the product, right? Make sure you know it inside out so that you can be able to talk to its strengths and weaknesses. And then one of the best things I like when it's truly coming to close a deal, I like talking through scenarios that are negative because I like going through, you know- With, with the client. With the client. You know, really? what's, what's the, you know, what, what would happen in this situation? And if you come to, a, to that conclusion together, like, you know, for instance, hey, we manage your house, you know, let's talk about what would happen if, uh, you know, you're upstairs flooded. And they go, oh my goodness, you know, this would be a nightmare, right? Well, this is what would happen. We'd go through it. And so we, we, you build value in the fact that you can talk through a negative experience and, and realize that you are the, you know, you're the, the solution for that. Um, I think that, you know, the honesty and transparency side of it uh, definitely can, you know, create some situations where if you're not listening to the client, you can tell them exactly what your product is. But if you're not listening and you're so confident in your own voice and you're being fully transparent about what your product is, you might miss on their one pain point. And their one pain point might be, you know, I need to get this piece of furniture delivered in two weeks. And it's like, well, that's easy. You know, obviously, obviously we can do that. Right, we can have somebody there to make sure your furniture gets course, in your house. Right? That's, yeah. a, that's a given. But, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to explain to them all these different scenarios. But if you don't listen to the one thing that they're trying to, you know, buy right now, um, you can miss. And, and that's, that's something that I've learned is listen to that pain point and realize, wow, that was actually a really easy sale. I could have just told them I'll meet them for the furniture. I could have been in and out of there in five minutes. You know what I mean? They would have signed up. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's the part that as much as you want to believe in your product and sell your product, you've got to listen to the pain point and realize, pick up on that and why, you know, why they want to hire a service like this. I think that's interesting because so often I think we think we have to convince people mm -hmm. that we're the best solution for them. When I think often you have to either let your past history speak for yourself by yep. referrals. Yep. And the other thing you have to let speak for yourself is you have to be able to understand them. Yep. If they feel you can relate to them yep. and understand what could go wrong for them, all of a sudden it's a, it's an easy deal. Price becomes less of a, yeah. an issue. Absolutely. And I think that... Um, there's an insurance company that I think is Travelers, and they talk about, we've seen it before, you know, oh. and, you know, that's where the experience piece comes in because then they say, well, what happens in this situation? And you can say, well, we've seen that before. This is what happens, and you kind of play it out. And as cliche as that is, and it's very salesy, you know, there is some honesty to that of, you know, having truly experienced that, whether it's floods, fires, whatever. Um, those are the sort of things that you can say, yep, in that situation, this is what happens, and I hear your pain point, but we can we can fix it. So as you run your business, we were talking a little bit about pricing here because that's one way to get new business. Sometimes when you start out a business or sometimes you feel to get new business, you have to discount to be able to get volume or to get client customers. What's your theory on pricing? So I think I messed that up, to be honest with you. I think we came in, uh, well, in hindsight, you know, everything happens for a reason. We, we are where we are now because we did what we did, but we came in cheap and we came in to undercut people to realize, you know, probably because we didn't necessarily believe in our own value at the point. Um, and I think the hardest thing, and, and I wouldn't say it's our biggest failure because it also created market share that then is, you know, put us on the map. But it's now a lot harder to increase my prices. You know, it's a lot easier to discount your prices than it is to, you know, just, you know, Keep, keep keep bumping it, it up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we came in and we tried to price very competitively and we gained some market share because of that. But now I'm in a situation where I'm saying, no, but we're offering a better product than those guys were. And, and your cost and to do, do the business has to do gone that up. Is, you know, has gone up. And yet we're still, you know, kind of down here. So, you know, certain clients are going to accept it and they're going to say, you're doing a great job. Yeah, that's fine. But then there's other people that are going to be looking at, you know, the other thing that's difficult about our business is a lot of our owners are remote. 
So they don't necessarily touch and feel this product every day. It's right. not like they get in their car and they go, I realize yeah, they the get a check from you once in a while. Check, to, check yeah. or a bill. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, they're either going one or two ways. And I think that's something that's hard to sometimes sell is, you know, kind of a remote service. Um, and then you got to believe in it and you got to be transparent and, and with the accounting and transparent with your services. But I would just say from a pricing standpoint, you know, if you truly are offering a product that is, you know, superior to others, you know, trust your pricing, you know, trust it and, and let your, let your product speak for itself. So I love that because I think that's one of the hardest parts in business is being able to price properly. So many people do feel as you originally did, and then you get caught in a trap because the hardest thing to do is to raise prices. The easiest thing to do is to give a sale or a discount. You can still maintain that pricing. You can bring somebody in to try you for a year and say, hey, we have a special going. We'll give you 20% off. And if they like you the next year, then they know it's going to reset back to that other price. And you, you don't, you're not raising it. They're just, no. Their discount expires. It's, yep. a, it's a different mental process. Absolutely. And we're all suckers for those deals, right? right. We're all suckers for the buy one, get one freeze or whatever it is. Right. And we know that's human nature. Um, so I completely agree with that. That's something that's a lot harder to ratchet up than it is to you know, discount down. So. Great. One of the other things that you mentioned earlier is that you bought a business. I'm kind of curious to know a little bit about that. How did you go about buying it? I know it was a, a, a homeowners association business yep. and it opened a lot of doors for you, but how, how did you go about it and how did you finance it? Yeah. So um, it was, you know, seller financed and it was a really, really difficult transaction. Um, you know, when you look at a textbook of how to value a company, you know, all of these different equations of, of, of business valuation that you learn in school, uh, it was a completely irrelevant. You know, this was more of a, it was such a personal experience for the exiting, you know, owner. Um, she'd built this business for 25 years. She'd built an, wow. an amazing so business. So it really was her baby. Uh, that was her pride and joy. And, you know. Um, so if you saw weaknesses in it, it would have been hard for you to point so at those. So hard to translate that and say, you know, hey, I like the way you're doing this, but I'm going to do it this way. So having that sensitivity around that transaction was more important than the numbers, you know, the dollars and cents on that. You know, we worked out that because of the efficiencies that we're going to recognize in the future, we were buying a business based on uh, growth opportunity, not necessarily set it and forget it. It wasn't that we could buy that business and sit back. Right. Um, and just continue to collect on yeah, the that, cash that flow. You knew you, you knew there was expertise yeah. you had that could immediately improve the profitability. But that, that thing, you know, I think everybody thinks that a transaction is all an Excel document. It's all, you know, P and L's and balance sheets and stuff like that. You know, I, you asked, you asked kind of what that experience was like. I wish I could have bought in a broker, um, and then I probably need a, a life coach more than I needed a broker, <laughs> you know, because there was as much saying, hey, how do, how do we navigate this, you know, situation? How do we navigate that friendship, that relationship, all those things? And there's something, you know, people think it's sexy to buy and sell businesses. That was tough. You know, there was tears. There was, you know, there was some awkward, you know, moments where we had to just be blunt with each other and say, hey, we're not doing this or sorry, I don't like that way. And that's hard. That's really difficult. So so how did you get through it? You eventually closed on it. Yeah. Um, you know, we, after a while, I think it was uh, that, you know, she was proud of kind of what we were doing with her name and kind of what we were, what we were running with. And she'd created this legacy and she'd created this, you know, this reputation. And I think she was worried that we were going to do it badly. Right. And so I think in a, in a way she was worried that her baby that she'd built was going to be, you know, mis, you know, mistreated. Right. Um, and so after a while and, you know, reshuffle employees and a few different things, um, we got through it, but it, it took, it took a long, a long time, to be honest with you. It took probably you know, almost two years for us to, you know, truly get through that. So how was that? I mean, you probably have your own philosophy on employees and somebody else who's been doing it for 25 years may have a, a totally different philosophy mm -hmm. on employees. How did you take two organizations and bring them together and still manage cohesively your employee, uh, philosophy? It was, uh, that was rough to be honest with you. And, and I think that, you know, it, from an age standpoint, I had the, the business that Lindsay and I had built was was very young um, from an employee age standpoint. And their business had some, you know, people that had been in it for 20 years and that was the way they did it. And I, I always use this example. They had these, uh, you know, the carbon paper for work orders. Oh, yeah. 
And I said, well, what do we do with this? You know, what do we do with these work orders? And he said, well, I, I write this down and then I, uh, I send, send an email off to the maintenance guys that, you know, tells them that I've, uh, I was like, so then what happens with the carbon copy? She's like, well, I, I, I store this in a filing cabinet. I said, well, what happens if I do this? And this was one of my, you know, kind of mean ways of sort of a transition. I was like, what happens if I do this? And I grabbed all the carbon copies and threw them in the garbage. I was like, are we still going to get those maintenance requests out? And, and she was like, yeah. I was like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's lose the paper. You know, let's use do the email and we've got this. And, and it was some, and even that was, was awkward, right? You're telling someone that the way they've done something for so long could be improved. It's duplicative and arcane. It, it's hard. You know, that's really, really hard. So that was, that was tough. And, you know, we lost employees during that transition. Um, but, you know, the good ones hung with us and, and they're still with us today. And it's, it's been good. You know, it's, overall, it's been really good. good. I like the fact that you did seller financing. Here's one thing. Sometimes people always worry that they're going to overpay for a business. And sometimes to entice a seller to sell to you, you have to pay a little more than maybe what you think it's mm -hmm. worth. And I think that's the signature of a good deal. Usually the seller feels like they're selling it for less than they really wanted. And the buyer feels like they're paying more than they really mm -hmm. want. But sometimes you have to, but you have to have a greater vision than that. But I think it's a great equalizer on seller financing because if there are things, big accounts or major weaknesses in the business or the representations that they made that aren't yeah. right, you have the ability to renegotiate yeah. the price. I, uh, did you en end up having to renegotiate or was everything? No, but you know, some of the flexibility that, that she offered from, a, um, from the financing standpoint helped. And I used that probably was the only piece from a negotiation standpoint was the cash flow side of things. And that was something that, you know, versus a bank or, you know, somebody like that, you know, we would have been in default, but because we were able to explain you know, this is the situation. This is kind of the situation that you hand it over. This is where we're at. Um, right. That, we'll make the payment, but it's going to come yeah, later. That, but having that human, you know, human person to person touch was hugely valuable in that sense, you know, versus calling up your bank and saying, I haven't got the money. Uh, it was, a, it was an easier conversation to explain why I don't have the money. So that was, that was important. I think that's great. I mean, we did a three part series on starting a business and one of the areas is is financing the business. And I think if you acquire one, seller financing is a great yeah. way. You don't have to involve the bankers Absolutely. Absolutely. in that. Um, well, do you have any talents that you, that you have that make your company unique or the way you run your company unique that makes you stand out above the competition? I think being present. You know, I think that often one of our hardest struggles at the moment is we, we offer a very customized product. Um, and Everybody has unique needs from what they want from their second home or something like that. And as an entrepreneur, you're always wanting to automate that, right? You're always wanting to scale, scale, scale. And, you know, how can I take this across the whole country? How can I, you know, make right. a robot do that? You know, <laughs> how can I do this? And I think just accepting sometimes that we're in a service, you know, we're in a labor intensive business. There's nothing sexy about having, you know, if you're in private equity and you're looking at a labor intensive business, it's probably a red flag, right? It's harder to scale. You know, you've got a lot of issues. And it's hard, hard to leverage a, a margin. Yeah. So you look at that and then you say to yourself, okay, well, is it a weakness or is that our strength? And I think that for me, you know, I could spend thousands of bucks on SEO, right? Instead, I like to invest it in the staff, you know, pay well. And, you know, going back to that kind of what's the best referral, you know, you don't want the random Google search of hoping that it's the right client. You want the friend of a friend of, you know, and that situation. And that for me, we, you know, we've had employees for a long time now, you know, we try to keep them because they're expensive to train. And, you know, it's the same thing with owners. You know, if you've got a homeowner, it's expensive to learn the house. It's expensive to go through and, you know, get acquainted with it. So, you know, for me, I'd say accepting that we can't automate this whole process and just saying, you know, we want to be transparent about what we're doing um, is, is, is really been a difficult struggle, but I think it's now realizing that struggle has actually become one of our strengths is, you know, we are a service uh, labor intensive business and we want to make our people, you know, our employees happy. Uh, and then as a result, if our employees are happy, then I'll start, you know, then our clients are going to be happy. Right. Because they're the touchstone yeah, to the clients. Absolutely. They either interact or are the beneficiary of their service. Absolutely. So. And, you know, if someone's having a bad day, they're going to wear it on their sleeve, you know? And so going back to one of the first things I spoke about, the communication piece, 
you know, if someone's walking around with their shoulders heavy and the body language, you've got to pick up on that because they're going to go out and they're your billboard to sell. And you've got the worst salesman ever. He's in a bad mood, right? <laughs> right? So that's, you know, that's something that's usually important is like, you know, why is that guy, you know, why is he in a bad mood? So that's, that's the sort of stuff that, you know, being a present owner is, is hugely important. Uh, I think that's great. Well, there's one question that no one can escape in the surface cave, and that is, what's your greatest failure? And what did you learn from it? Yeah, so I, that was a, you know, that's a tough question. And I think, you know, you can pinpoint individual, you know, moments. Uh, for me, I think it was a, a span of a work-life balance issue for me. Um, you know, I, we left New York because we didn't have that. We came out here, we were skiing, we were having, you know, trying having to find that, having a good time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was like, oh my goodness, we've got employees, we've got, you know, responsibilities, we've got this, we've got that. And both Lindsay and I, you know, my, my wife was parent, you know, completely involved. We, we worked right next to each other the whole time. You know, we had a small office to start with. We both realized that. I love that. I love that image. Carol worked with me for a little while. She said she'd never come to work with me again. <laughs> yeah. I think Lindsay might be more it's, it's compassionate. Tough. It's tough. <laughs> but it was, you know, that was our baby for a while. And, you know, just having that, you know, that crazy kind of moment where you go home from work and we both leave and then you go home and you talk about work again <laughs> and we messed up, you know, we, we couldn't get away from it, you know, and we didn't travel enough. We didn't see family enough. We neglected our health. You know, I was 20, 30 pounds overweight. It's just things that you believe are true core values to you. You disregard because. Cause you immerse yourself in the business yeah. because you want the success and you've yeah. had, you give it your all. Absolutely. So how did you reverse that? What'd you learn and how did you apply that? Yeah. It was funny because we it was uh, it was actually last last winter. Lindsay Lindsay was just all in, and and we've talked about kind of how we you know as much as we pretend to be not micromanagers, a lot of entrepreneurs are still micromanagers, and they're going to listen in the DNA. It is, and they're going <laughs> to hear hear a conversation over there, and they're going to be like, "That's not how I would do it. That's not how I, I'm going to go and tell them how I do it." You know, <laughs> and that just that just takes it out of you because now you're involved in everything. You're involved in linens toilet paper, you know, fires and the real stuff that you should be involved in, acquisition, all those things, and you just can't get away. And so, you know, this winter we had a moment and I sat down with Lindsay and I said, you know, what happens if you don't go in tomorrow? And uh, she was like, well, what do you mean? I, I've got to do this, this, and this. And I said, what happens if that doesn't happen, right? And she goes, well, da, 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 da. And so we went down this, you know, we went down the kind of the negative spiral of what could happen if Lindsay didn't do what she was doing. We both came to the conclusion that realistically, the worst case scenario was we might lose a client. And we thought about it and we were like, the reason that we might lose that client is not based on anything that we're doing. It was based on the client's expectations, et cetera, et cetera. So Lindsay didn't go in the next day and uh, we went for it. We just tried it and we ripped that bandaid and we said, don't come in. All right. You're not coming into the office. You're going to stay home. You're not going to call in. I'm not, you're not going to call in. You're not going to do anything. You're truly not working. Right. And it worked. And uh, I came home and, you know, she- Now she, she never wants to come in. No, anymore. now she doesn't want to come in. But it's brilliant because now when she does come in, she's involved in the stuff that she wants to be involved in. She's involved in the bigger picture things and she's not getting herself stuck in the weeds. And I, I, I was fortunate when we did the HOA uh, acquisition that I didn't go and jump into the weeds on that. I tried to be a little more macro on that one. So you brought so in, so you to, had key management yeah. that you brought in so you didn't have to. And that was hugely beneficial because, you know, Lindsay was still running the vacation rentals, but she was in the weeds. And so until we said, all right, you're out. And we both made that decision together. It was, it was just amazing. And, you know, recently in the last couple of months, I've moved my office to try and do the same thing to say, I'm not getting in the weeds. I'm not going to make that random decision. We'll, I, I we'll like what you out. said. You found another office across the hallway Literally. from the office. Yeah. <laughs> right, right across. I, I like that because you know what I found in business is it's easy as a business owner, where it's your baby, you care so much that you just want to give your all to it. And when you're giving your all to that business, you tend to be involved in all of the details and what we did is we would go to Europe for three weeks and it would be nine hour time zone difference yep. away from Arizona. And so while we were, while they were sleeping in Arizona, I was out having fun. Yeah. And when they were working, I was sleeping there. Yep. So it kind of gave myself a chance to be away, let them manage on their own, which they were capable of. I just, I didn't have to hover and it, and it helped me mature as a manager. And I think sometimes it takes stepping back and operating at the 
highest impact level, what you can do that makes the greatest difference and in I, business. I would say that, you know, we're the, you know, we're the stabilizers or the, you know, what do you guys call them? The wheels on the side of the bike, stabilizers? Stabilizers, yeah. yeah. Um, we're those wheels on the side of a bike. And, you know, realistically- Training wheels. Training wheels, that's yeah, it, yeah. There you go. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the employees can ride without them, you know, and we're the, we're actually the problem a lot right. of the time. We're slowing the them down. We're slowing them down. If they didn't have those two wheels, they'd be a lot faster. And so I think sometimes it's up to the, it's up to the owner to realize, take that leap of faith and realize, yes, if you did it yourself, it would be a hundred percent. And if an employee does it, maybe it's going to be 90%. But you know what? 90% now you've got 190% production because you're not sitting there managing that other 90%. So, you know, that, that for me was one of those like moments where I'm like, okay, I could probably do this better, but they're going to get it. They're going to work it out. So, you know, there's a few of those like training wheel moments where you just have to embrace it. And I'd say that's, that's a really tough thing, especially for a young, like entrepreneur to try and just be like, are you going to be okay? Are you going to yeah. crash that bike? Or, you know, and <laughs> right. Like, are you going to ruin my business? Yeah. You're going to ruin that business. Cause that's an expensive bike. You know, I put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into that one. And then sure enough, they're flying, they're flying quicker than, you know, and then you can go and get another bike. So. Uh, I think that's great. Well, I have one more question because this just keeps haunting my mind. And that is, I want to understand what you think the greatest sale or the greatest transaction you or deal you ever closed. Maybe you can describe it in terms of money or not. I don't really care about the finance, but what, what was it about the deal that made you feel good and why was it so monumental to you? Yeah. So it's, you know, you got a lot of those little deals. And I think when we think about finance and you kind of go back and you close a deal and you sort of, you know, the old school, like ding the bell and it's done. You know, I think for me, one of the, the interesting parts was that I can't do that. When I come back and I've closed something, I've closed it and I've done, you know, yes, I've done my sales bit, but then you've got to do the ops part, right? And so one of the transactions that we've done this year, um, we've acquired a, a, a group of houses. Um, and I think the reason it was my best, you know, our best deal was because we analyzed it truthfully, you know, very honestly and decided, is it the right fit for us? And I thought that we were going to mess it up because I thought us being that brutally honest was going to make them realize they wanted to go somewhere else. And really all it did was solidify the relationship because what we did was we went through going back to the, you know, go through some of those negatives. You know, what happens if we don't do this? What happens if this happens? And we went through hundreds, well, tens, twenties, you know, scenarios of situations that could occur. And Lindsay and I, we had a final Zoom call with them. Um, and Lindsay was kind of sat off to my side. And, um, you know, we both sort of said, all right, based on this phone call, we're going to decide whether or not we're in or not. We are, not the client, you know. Right. And it's, it's yours to lose. It was ours to lose. And we said, do we want to do this, right? And uh, I remember about, you know, 15 minutes in, the clients were great and they were saying all the right things and you know they were realizing it was a relationship they was they were speaking the language that we wanted them to speak and i remember lindsay writing on a post-it note uh let's do it right and she just wrote it on the post-it note next to me and going back to transparency i said okay guys well here's lindsay's opinion so i picked up the post-it <laughs> note right and i said let's do it and uh, i showed them it on the zoom and and they were like all right that's brilliant we're all in and so you know that was for me it wasn't the biggest financial gain uh, it wasn't the hardest, you know, most analytical transaction I've ever done, but it was just the emotional involvement of it going back to, do we need this? Do we want this? And, and we navigated that. And so that was really, really fulfilling to close that knowing that we've actually done a weird due diligence, not your typical due diligence. Due diligence. Right. It was an emotional due diligence. And that was really, really, we were proud of that one. So. I think that's good because, you know, often I say people start a business to make money. And I think that's, that's an honorable objective and the business should make money and be profitable. And you need to learn to manage it effectively and efficiently. But if that's the sole objective, then you're not going to get the satisfaction. So I'm glad to hear that you derived an emotional satisfaction from that because that's one of the key principles I emphasize often in the Biz, um, in the Biz Sherpa podcast is that you have to derive something more than dollars and cents or you're not going to come back. Then you'll burn out. You, you start to do business with people you want to do business with. They become your friends. You become, you be, you're able to interact with them and derive something that wakes you up in the morning that's more than, hey, what am I going to make this month? What can I buy with that? It's going to become, boy, I can achieve and 
and there's people I can relate to and they can relate to me. And I think your scorecard uh, resonates, you know, fully with me. Um, and I think that, that that was something that when we looked at it and, you know, you made that comment in one of the earlier podcasts about, you know, how Carol said, we're not going to lose everything. You know, we've got each other, we've got this. And it allows you to get grounded and it allows you to realize, you know, what is your emotional currency? What is, you know, what is it that's driving you? You know, and I thought about that and I was, I was thinking, well, you know, Lindsay's, Lindsay said to me multiple times, like, we're good. Okay. We're, we're okay. Uh, and that wasn't based on numbers. You know, that was based on, you know, our love for each other, you know, the situation that we had. And that was something that then empowers you to go and, you know, take a risk, you know, it empowers right. you to go and be honest with yourself and not just be beating your head against the wall. And, you know, so those, those for me, from an emotional currency standpoint, it just, if you can't reconnect to why you're doing it, uh, it's, you're going to burn out for sure. Exactly. It's just the same old thing. You're not sharpening the saw. Well, I'm grateful that you would agree to be a guest no, on our podcast it. today. I think the principles that you've experienced and that you've that you apply in your business every day are symbolic of what makes businesses successful. So I'm grateful you're willing to share your secrets Thank you. with us. They're not secrets. It's just a lot of bruises and learning from as you go through it. So yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for yeah, having us. It is the school of hard knocks, yeah, being absolutely. an entrepreneur and being a business owner, but it's well, well worth it, not only financially, but also emotionally. You know, I'm grateful that you'd come and participate with us today, but I'm also grateful for our recurring listeners and viewers. I think that the principles that we discuss here can add to and enhance success, but also enhance the satisfaction you get in life. And I think James has done a great job of sharing with us some of the successes that he's experienced in a way he's able to reset his life in a way that he's able to re achieve some emotional satisfaction from his business. I'm grateful you joined me today in the Sherpa's Cave. This is Craig Willett, the Biz Sherpa. Be sure to go to our website to access the resources related to this episode at www.bizsherpa.co. If you enjoyed this show, tell your friends about us and be sure to rate our podcast. Craig would like to hear from you, so share your thoughts in the Facebook community at bizsherpa.co. Follow us on Twitter at bizsherpa underscore co and on Instagram at bizsherpa.co.